Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In this episode of Market Matters, we'll hear from the market data and positioning intelligence teams within our data assets and alpha group. They'll be talking about key macro, micro, and political themes in the context of our high-frequency trading data and proprietary signals from J.P. Morgan's markets business. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Peng Cheng, who is head of big data and AI strategies within our research department. Peng has a huge amount of experience in developing systematic equity strategies, particularly those linked to flows, an area where he believes market inefficiencies and opportunities to find alpha or outperformance can be particularly fruitful. And over the last few years, Peng has particularly focused on analysing flows and trading activity from the US retail investor, a group of investors who really grew in presence and market share through the pandemic. So I'm looking forward to asking Peng all about his findings here, including how the US retail investor has been participating in the latest or at least the January equity rally. So Peng, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alice. Glad to be here. So for those listeners who haven't read your research or indeed listened to our prior podcast together, which was back in mid-November, so three months ago now, can you start by introducing yourself, Peng, and explaining what your role and your mandate is? Yeah, sure. So very briefly, we're part of the JP Morgan Global Research, and I lead a team called Big Data and AI Strategies. So specifically, our team... It's responsible for developing investment strategies, analytics for our clients, which includes hedge funds and asset managers. And we leverage advanced and modern statistical techniques and alternative as well as traditional data. Thanks. And in terms of where you find those market inefficiencies and alpha opportunities, I said earlier that you put this heavy emphasis on flows analysis. So Peng, is there any context you'd add here? Yeah, so we think that kind of order flow, positioning, these kind of factors are important drivers of market dynamics these days, especially since the COVID pandemic. This is mainly because market liquidity has become so much lower since the pandemic. So we think that these order flows, whereas before maybe they don't have as much market impact, now they carry much, much greater market impact with them. They tend to create market inefficiencies. And I was just listening to a podcast by Cliff Asness with The Economist. Now, at the risk of promoting another podcast on our own, he's obviously a student of Eugene Fama, who is famous for the efficient market hypothesis. But he also alluded to Richard Thaler, who kind of created the discipline of behavioral finance. And he said that maybe 20 years ago, the market was 75% Fama, 20% Thaler. But now it's more like 75% Thaler, 25% pharma. So that means behavioral finance and inefficient kind of market behaviors, irrational market behaviors are much more prevalent in the market conditions today. And I find myself agreeing with his assessment. That's absolutely fascinating context there on the behavioral side of this. So moving on to the retail investor then, Peng, back in November, you were talking about the retail investor getting quite bearish and they were net selling equities through the latter months of last year, which was obviously a marked contrast with all the net buying that we'd seen from the retail investor through the pandemic. So 
Can we start with the very high level backdrop on how the US retail investor has been behaving recently? And thematically, where have you seen retail activity lately? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. They were heavy sellers of equities at the end of last year. It's a combination of bear resentment and kind of year-end tax loss harvesting. And year-to-date, they've actually been net buyers and very active in the market. Again, you know, part of it is seasonality, right? After they've sold in December, they'll buy back in January for tax reasons. But their activity actually has gone beyond the normal seasonality. And if we measure by the number of shares traded, their activity has reached all-time high. And you know, in our view, this is encouraged by the strong returns in equities in January, especially in, in the meme stocks and crypto assets. So as a result, we see their activity pick up particularly strong in the small cap stocks as well. Besides that, they continue to be buyers of mega cap technology names as usual. Thanks so much, Peng. You spoke there about the strong equity market rally in January and the idea that the retail investor was net buying amid that market strength. But of course, in February, and particularly in the last few trading sessions, the US markets have actually sold off a little bit alongside the spike higher in US bond yields. So Peng, how have you seen the retail investor trade amid this more recent market weakness? So we've actually observed something very interesting in their behavior, and that is in the cash equity market, maybe their buying flow is about in line with average. But in the options market, they've become really, really active in the form of uh, buying bullish options. And these are options on the S&P 500 indices and ETFs and with very, very short maturity, zero day to expiry and one day to expiry options. So that is something of a recent development that is quite notable. Thanks, Peng. It's such a great point about the rise in zero days to expiry options. Would you say that the retail investors are driving these options flows? And what are your observations here? Yeah, so our data definitely suggests that retail investors increasingly prefer to trade shorter data options, especially since last year. And overall, they are net buyers of these options. So, you know, they buy put options as well as call options with very, very short data expiries. In our view, probably use it more as a lottery tickets kind of instrument. But actually, based on our analysis, which looks at tick level options data and classify trades as being retail versus non-retail at the trade level, we still see retail investors to make up only a very small percentage of those short data SPX option trades. By the way, these options are now making up about 50% of the SPX option volume, so they're absolutely massive. Now, of course, the question is then, okay, if it's not retail investors, who are driving these flows? In fact, we think that the flow is largely driven by systematic funds and high-frequency traders. That's an amazing stat that zero-day-to-expiry options are making up nearly 50% of the S&P 500 options flows at this stage. So you mentioned there that it's systematic funds and high-frequency trading firms that are moving into this space. Why are they doing that and what are the key benefits to them? So we, again, analyze these order flows at the tick level and we find that most of these order flows are net selling in nature. So they sell options collect premium, and we think that they likely structure their trades in such a way that they also limit their max loss. So overall, economically, what does it mean, right? It means that they're basically playing intraday reversal strategies on the S&P, and they hold on to these trades at 
very short horizons, let's say, you know, maybe in the order of magnitude of 10 minutes. And it seems like the strategies that they engage in is profitable, even though the bid ask is wider than longer data options, but looks like these trades continue to produce positive PNL, and that's why these trades are so actively traded by high-frequency traders and systematic funds. Interesting. And what has been the catalyst for these systematic funds and high-frequency trading firms to move into this space? Well, mechanically, the CBOE listed daily expiry SPX options in May last year. So as a result, every weekdays, there are SPX options expiring. And this kind of consistency allows systematic funds to carry out strategies consistently. So that's something probably is desirable for them. Moreover, since the pandemic, we've seen liquidity in the SPX options migrating towards more shorter data tenors. And this kind of higher liquidity, higher volume, higher activity attracts more and more investors. So that becomes a virtuous cycle. And lastly, I think these kind of options also have desirable characteristics compared to trading futures alone. And the reason being, like I said, they can be structured in a limiting loss format. So investors who trade in a high frequency will have better risk control uh, using these options as opposed to futures. I think those are some of the desirable characteristics of trading zero-day options. That's so interesting. Thank you. And if the systematic and high frequency trading firms are generally selling these options and thereby collecting options premium, who's buying them? Who's on the other side of these trades? Is it the retail investor? We do find retail investors to be net buyers of these options. However, as I said, the market share taken up by retail investors still appears to be quite small. Most of these trades are executed electronically. So the counterparties are basically electronic market makers. And we've done the analysis to see what their P&L may look like. And it appears that after bid-ask, on a delta-hedged basis, these electronic market makers also consistently make money. So you've got a situation where the end users who are high-frequency traders, they don't doubt a hedge, they express directional views, and they produce positive PNL. On the other side, electronic market makers, doubt a hedge, take the bid ask, also make positive PNL. So it seems like a win-win situation. But of course, options market is a zero-sum game. So who is actually losing? In our view, it is probably the users who take on the opposite side economically of the high-frequency traders. And in other words, intraday momentum traders. And these intraday momentum traders are not necessarily consciously engaged in intraday momentum strategies. But we find that a lot of passive strategies, they tend to implicitly carry an intraday momentum bias. And it could be that these systematic passive strategies are losing out to the high-frequency traders in the form of zero-day options. That's really fascinating. Thank you so much, Peng. I wanted to move on to the implications of the growth in zero-day to expiry options. I think you began to express it there in terms of the impact on the more passive strategies, for example. But what would you say more generally are the implications of the rise in zero-day to expiry options? Yeah, so assuming we're correct in that most of the end users are sellers of these options, then at least in normal market conditions, it's likely to suppress both implied and realized volatility. I think it's easy to understand that implied volatility will be suppressed because 
options are sold, and implied volatility being the price of uh, options will naturally experience a downward pressure. However, uh, realized volatility is likely to be suppressed as well. And this is because option market makers, who are the counterparties to these trades, will have to trade the underlying delta to hedge their exposures. And the process of hedging will suppress realized volatility as well, especially intraday, because these uh, options are traded actively intraday. That's fascinating. And it does make sense that there should be that suppression in intraday vol at both the implied and the realized level. But Peng, you have written about this alleviation in gamma supply away from the zero days to expiry part. What's the impact of this, do you think? Yes, that's right. So in terms of the impact, I mean, first order effect we've already discussed, supply of zero-day options suppresses levels of implied volatility. But because the supply volatility has shifted towards shorter dated, then what we find is the volatility term structure has deepened. So that's one aspect. Additionally, there's also an asymmetry in the supply of calls and puts. So this leads to a flattening of the implied volatility skew which is the difference between out-of-the-money call and put implied vol on the SPX. So these are relatively second-order effects, but they're still noticeable to volatility-focused investors. Thank you. And continuing on the theme of these second-order effects, as you put them, do you think they create new risks or dynamics for market stability? Yeah, so that's a very good question and something a lot of clients have asked us. So I would say that given that these are net selling order flow, again, under normal market conditions, I don't think they're responsible for driving any wild intraday moves in the S&P. However, we do see a potential for disorderly unwind in case of uh, extreme market moves. So the mechanics could unfold like the following. If during a period of low market liquidity intraday, we experience a very large move in a very short period of time, then sellers of these zero-day options may experience a large market-to-market losses, and therefore they will all be forced to unwind. And this kind of disorderly unwind will actually propagate even higher volatility. So that could lead us to some kind of scenario that is similar to February 2018 Walmageddon, as pointed out by Marko Kolanovic, our chief market strategist, in his latest note. Well, that's definitely a risk for us to be on the lookout for. And in fact, just my final question really on this piece is, are there any data points you'd be tracking to understand if we're beginning to come towards that more risky scenario for markets? I think at the headline level, when you observe the option volume traded, it's actually not a very good indicator because a lot of these trades are netted off quite rapidly. Like I said, the holding periods are generally speaking five to 10 minutes. So the actual market impact is probably a fraction of what the headline volume suggests. What's important is to track tick level option data, estimate their net effects, estimate their imbalance. And that's pretty much you know, what we do in our team. We track these high-frequency data and then put out analysis in the form of reports and data analytics. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, that's probably a great segue into the data sets that you have on offer. Can you outline which data sets you do make available to our clients and also any enhancements you've made to the data since we last met and spoke about this in November? 
Yeah, so I think specific to the market structure at the moment, we have data sets that track retail investor behavior in both the cash equity as well as the options market. So the cash market, again, we use publicly available exchange data feeds, and then we look at the execution venue and execution quality of uh, each and every trade. So it allows us to monitor in real time the retail activity across the entire U.S. equity universe. And I think since we last spoke, a new development there is that we can now offer intraday market data in the frequency of every 30 minutes. So investors can get an even more real-time estimate of how retail investors are behaving in the U.S. market. In the options market, we offer something similar as well. You know, over there, the market structure is slightly different, but the principles are the same. We look at, at the trade level, where a trade takes place, how the execution quality is. We can identify whether a trade is done by retail investors or non-retail. And then we also provide associated risk parameters like delta and gamma. So investors can use these data to gauge market risk as well as market signals. That's fascinating. Thank you, Peng. So turning to the alpha opportunities that you can find in looking at this data, could you explain the predictive power you find in retail flows? And do you see differences in predictive power following cash versus options orders? Yeah, so I think in the mainstream media, retail investors are portrayed as unsophisticated, irrational investors. But actually, in our data, we find that there is information in their order flow in terms of alpha, and that is stocks that are popular with retail investors tends to outperform stocks that are unpopular with retail investors, at least in the short term. And by short term, we mean from one week to one month in horizon. In the option space, the directional signal is largely the same. In other words, it's also a lead indicator of a short-term returns, but the holding period appears to be much shorter. And this lasts about one day to one week. And if you think about it, it probably makes sense that if a retail investor has some kind of short-term event-driven signal, they will be more gravitated towards using options to express their views. On the other hand, if you have a longer-term conviction, you may turn to the cash equity markets. That's great. And it's worth flagging that this Flows dataset is available to clients via regular insights from Peng's research, but also via systematic feed. And in fact, we've also combined Peng's retail flows data with retail social sentiment. And we've also found predictive power in combining that data. That is, we found predictive power in following that short-term momentum in stocks where the retail investor has not only started to buy i.e. the flows have been positive, but they're also talking about with positive sentiment on social media. And this combined data set is called Through the Retail Lens product, and it's available via systematic feed and automated daily emails. So please do reach out if you'd like to learn more about this. But Peng, back to you. I always try and end with the question of what next. So Peng, what's on your pipeline for workflow and analysis for the coming months? And what are clients asking you for? Yeah, so I think flow and positioning data continues to be very popular and in demand. So what's in our pipeline includes more data sets using option imbalances to forecast stock price returns. It also includes higher frequency predictions of fixed income and commodity futures positioning. And lastly, we've also invested a lot in our NLP capability. I know ChatGPT is all the rage these days. 
we have our proprietary NLP engine called SmartBus, and uh, we're looking forward to providing this capability to our clients in the form of data sets as well as analytics. So clients who are interested in our latest research can visit our webpage called Investable AI. It is available on JP Morgan Markets, our research website. So just type in Investable AI in the search bar and you'll be taken there. Thank you, Peng. That all sounds really exciting. And it is worth pointing out that the Investable AI portal has some really phenomenal data sets and charts and analytics on there. So it really is worth taking a look at that. So we've covered a huge amount of ground today from the scale of retail net selling at the end of last year to the retail buying we've seen more recently to the sectors in which the retail investor has migrated to recently, particularly, I think, across the tech and the smaller cap space. And then we've also covered the importance in tracking flows data as a source of market inefficiency and therefore as a potential source of alpha. And I loved your point, Peng, about the importance of the behavioural side of flows and therefore alpha generation earlier. And we've covered the short-term momentum we typically see in retail flows and indeed retail sentiment. And then we covered the new structures used by the retail investor, notably zero-day to expiry options and the implications of the rise in these options on gamma supply across the term structure and even potentially for market stability. So, Peng, thank you so much for sharing your views on all things retail with us today. Thank you again for having me. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this regular podcast from our group. If you'd like to explore Peng's wider team content, please do have a look at jpmorganmarkets.com, where you can sign up to Peng's research and also see the wider Investable AI webpage that Peng referred to. You can find it under the strategy, derivatives and quant category on JP Morgan Markets. And finally, if you'd like to explore our data assets and alpha team content further or indeed get in touch with us, then please take a look at our website at jpmorgan.com slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow J.P. Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, J.P. Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures, forward slash sales and trading disclaimer.